Hey everyone, welcome back to Historical Friction. My name is Alice Proctor, I'm a writer and art historian, and this is a podcast about pop culture, storytelling, and historical commemoration. This episode is a fun one. I talked to Abigail Fine about representations of the Cinderella story, specifically in the 1998 film Ever After. We also talked about the very 90s representation of feminism and gender relations and things like that in this film. As a quick warning, the discussion includes the use of a slur, which is used in film by characters to describe a group of people who are roughly analogous to Traveller or Roma people, although really they're much, much more of a Hollywood stereotype than an accurate representation of those communities. We use the same word, but I want to be very clear that that's not an appropriate term to use and we're attempting to frame it within the Hollywood context of this particular type of character. If you want to support the show, I'm on Patreon at Historical Friction and any support gets you access to monthly bonus episodes and little extras and things like that. I really appreciate any support that you can give. But equally, if you just want to listen to the show, that is absolutely fine. Leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or any of the other platforms that you use makes a massive difference and recommending the show is also super important. If you want to find me on Twitter, I am at AA Proctor. The show is at History Friction, and Abigail is on Twitter at Once Upon a Fine. So, with that, I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself for people? Yes. Um, My name is Abigail Fine, and I am a third year PhD student at Queen Mary University of London researching children's literature and adaptations of Cinderella. Amazing. So we are doing quite a fun one for this episode. It's not strictly a historical film, although it is set in a sort of mythical-ish past. Uh, We are talking about the 1998 film version of Cinderella, which is called Ever After, which I think was a pretty definitive childhood experience for a lot of people born in the 90s. Um, It definitely was, yes. (laughs) So we're going to talk mostly about Ever After, but a little bit as well about how other fairy tale adaptations sort of of the 90s adapt the genre and play with the idea of this kind of folkloric tradition and I wanted to start off by asking you to explain the context of the Cinderella story. Yeah um, so the Cinderella story is known as the Arne Thompson Uther tale type 510a the persecuted heroine um, and it is an ancient story. Um, the It depends on what you consider to be Cinderella, uh, but the earliest version, one of them is written circa first century BCE uh, by Strabo, and it's the story of Rodolphus and it's Egyptian. Um, and the story is that Rodolphus went down to the river to bathe with some of her maids and an eagle flew by and stole her sandal and dropped it in the lap of the pharaoh who fell in love with the sandal uh, and declared (laughs) that he would marry whoever fit the sandal. So you can see some of the Cinderella stuff in there. Um, And then there's another version, um, a Chinese variant of Cinderella called Yi Qian that was first written down circa 850 common era. 
And in this version, the Cinderella character has a stepmother of sorts. It's one of her father's other wives and her biological mother dies um, and comes back in the shape of a fish in a pond that she befriends. Uh, and then the stepmother kills the fish and buries the bones uh, or kills the fish and feeds them to the girl. And then a spirit comes and tells the girl to gather the fish bones and bury them and then make a wish upon them, which is how she gets the clothes to go to a festival. And it includes um, a tiny golden slipper in that version. Yeah, this is so interesting because the sort of fundamental variance of the idea of the beautiful girl who's recognizable by an item of her clothing or some sort of detail of her dress. The trope that comes sort of most commonly, I think, to people in modern Europe, at least, is the glass slipper. Mm -hmm. um, but always the idea of the stepmother, the stepsisters, some kind of maligned heroine who deserves better than the way that she's been treated. Yeah, the glass slipper uh, famously comes from Perrault. Uh, so Charles Perrault wrote down his version of Cinderella, which is the one that most Anglo-American people are familiar with. Um, it was written, it was published in 1697, um, and it is the first version to include both a glass slipper and a fairy godmother. Um, prior to Perrault, the closest thing to a fairy uh, was in a version by Giambattista Vazil, which was published posthumously in 1634, I believe. Um, and that had the Cinderella character, her father goes to, on a trip to Sardinia and she has sort of cursed him to have to ask these fairies for a gift for her. And the fairies give her a sapling and a handkerchief and a shovel so that she can water uses the handkerchief to water the sapling and the shovel to bury it and she tends this tree and then a fairy steps out of it and basically says okay good job you made a tree ask it for anything you want <laughs> and leaves so the tree is still the magical helper in that sense but it was given by a fairy but yeah there's no fairy godmother in the sense that we have or glass slipper prior to Perot. Mm. And so Ever After is a variant on this. It takes this sort of framing narrative of the grand dame, the old lady, we never really find out that much more about her, who calls the Grimm brothers to her castle and tells them that they got the story wrong. And so we have this really interesting framing device where we have the storyteller, meeting the kind of keeper of the story in, in the form of this great great granddaughter of Danielle who is the Cinderella character in this and she tells them what she knows about the, the real story or the true Cinderella so we see it as this kind of story within a story yeah, um, I think that this framing story is very interesting, particularly getting into the glass slipper bit, because um, in the beginning of this movie, uh, as you're saying, we have the grand dame who seems to be French, which is again, a weird time period thing, because <laughs> <laughs> the Grimm's did not publish uh, their first version of the Kinder and House Marchand until 1812. Um, and then they edited it subsequently through 1854, um, or 57. I'd have to look that date up exactly, but, uh, one of those, uh, the 1850s. yeah, the 1850s, <laughs> um, but they, uh, 
they are not publishing until well after the French Revolution. <laughs> and we have this aristocratic French woman who is presumably in France, but maybe in exile somewhere. She's still dressed in, in very, uh, I would say, Mm, it looks roughly circa 1770s, 70s, 80s garb. Uh, mm. And they are, I mean, this has to be taking place in at least 1813. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so they come and they find her. Um, so that's a little bit of an odd, okay. Uh, and then she subsequently is saying like that she knows the real Cinderella and they say, well, nobody really knows, you know, the fur or the slipper could be made of fur or it could be made of glass. And this is picking up on a kind of um, 19th century rumor. Love them. My favorite kind of rumor. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so the, and it's something that I, that crops up in academia from time to time, but it's been, I would say, mostly debunked that that Perot intended to have the glass slipper be a fur slipper. But this is sort of a big pervasive thing that seeped into pop culture. So the idea that of this of this rumor is that the word ver, V-E-R-R-E in French is glass. And the word ver, V-A-I-R is a kind of fur, like a squirrel fur kind of thing. Um, and the, the disconnect comes in saying that when Perot was listening to his oral source telling him this tale, he assumed that they had said ver, V-E-R-R-E, when they had meant ver, fur. And there's this whole, you know, you can't, how on earth could anybody wear a glass slipper? Surely that's an impractical shoe. Well, also it's pretty impractical that a fairy godmother would turn a pumpkin into <laughs> a carriage, but that happens too, and nobody's quibbling yeah. with that. Yeah. And all of Perrault's stories, not just his version of Cinderella, have these kind of like magical elements to them where things are sort of almost plausible, but then there's something sort of, the, the, the concluding fairy or the sort of magic of the story comes out very strongly. And it's not about telling a true history. It's very invested in this kind of magical narrative. Yes. And um, there's a scholar named Catherine Hoffman who has written an article looking at how Perot's tales really fit among the glass tales of the 17th Mm. century and that fairies in these tales, particularly tales by other people in the French court, primarily women, um, include fairies living in palaces of glass and crystal and that glass and crystal was a whole big fad in the French court at this time. And you think about Versailles and the Hall of Mirrors. I was going to say like, yeah, the idea of things being made of glass or like a palace of glass or crystal makes so much sense when you put it in that kind of context. Yeah. So um, Hoffman ends up tracing the first mention of uh, this fur slipper to a 19th century encyclopedia editor who says surely he couldn't have meant glass he must have meant fur and then Honoré de Balzac picks that up and starts saying you know he meant fur and from there it just kind of explodes but um I guess this is a little bit like the Shakespeare authorship question Mm. where I suppose you can't prove it but uh you kind of can prove that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare yeah Uh, right yeah and I'm also like I don't know that I would necessarily look for 
romance and fairy tale excitement from an encyclopedia editor like I feel like <laughs> there's a limit to the imagination there that maybe maybe you're gonna get the more practical suggestion rather than the more true to the story more accurate to the yeah. narrative world and the time period that yeah. Grove was writing yeah but in Ever After yes the Grimm's come in with their it could be glass it could be fur even though in the Grimm's version it's gold um ah. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and then the, the grand dam says, no, no, this, I, this is the, the real story. And here is her glass slipper, um, which appears to be probably more made of silk and, mm. beads. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know. it's very, it's a very beautiful, um, there's something very sweet about the moment where she presents this object to the storytellers and I guess I like it from the point of view of like the look on their faces and the way that that scene sort of takes place is very much like the experience of being a historian going into an archive and seeing something for the first time yeah. and it it's quite romantic and quite touching um, but from there she presents the slipper and we jump back in time to who knows when <laughs> because this story exists outside of regular chronology um let's talk about who the main figures in this version of Cinderella are so we've already said that Danielle stands in for our Cinderella figure she has the stepmother Rodmila de Ghent who is stunningly played by Angelica Houston who is by far the highlight of this film for me agreed <laughs> um, but we're in sort of roughly 16th century France yeah so we have this weird disconnect in which Danielle de Barbarac and Radmila de Ghent are completely fictional characters. Um, but we are in a real kingdom. We are in France. Um, and we have real historical figures that crop up like Leonardo da Vinci and arguably Prince Henry uh, could, could be historical. Um, but there's no telling when this actually takes place uh, because in the there's a scene in which um, the prince is speaking with Leonardo da Vinci, who has painted the Mona Lisa by this point. And he says, and da Vinci says that he was called to the French court because Michelangelo is painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which occurred between 1508 and 1512. So we could, based on that, pinpoint the film to somewhere like roughly 1510. Yeah. Um, but in the very beginning of the film, so the film begins almost with a flashback of a flashback. So we have the grand dame saying, here's Danielle's slipper. And then it flashes back to when Danielle is a child. So roughly maybe 10 years old-ish. Um, and her father gives her a copy of Thomas More's Utopia which was published in 1516. And then he dies the next day. And then the narration says that 10 years pass, uh, which means that the earliest the main action could take place is 1526, except Leonardo da Vinci died in 1519. <laughs> this is, I spent so long trying to line up all of the possible dates in which this film could take place and like at the end of the day it doesn't matter it's a fairy tale no. blah 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 but it is a really interesting exercise in terms of thinking about the use of time and flashback in a story like this and yeah. what it does to the fairy tale when we set it in this sort of ambiguous past so 
the earliest we can be is 1526, except somehow Michelangelo is still working on the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> Michelangelo is still working on the Sistine Chapel and Da Vinci is somehow still alive. Um, and also the uh, Prince of France, Henry II, who we think is probably Prince Henry, if it's 1526, then he's what, seven years old? <laughs> think so something like that um and of course he eventually marries Catherine de Medici right is not Danielle de Barbara (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I don't know I think I I find this use of time and historical figures very interesting because there's always this argument that when you do a sort of alternative history narrative you're going to encourage people to look for the real figures and maybe some people will watch this film and go and look up the work of Leonardo da Vinci, or they will go and read more about Catherine de' Medici or something <laughs> like that. Um, but it does also mean that we're in this sort of world where we recognize certain truths and realities. Like we know 16th century France brings with it sort of specific tropes about a kind of courtly atmosphere and the social status and that sort of thing. But we're not tied to the real biographies of people, you know, yeah. Cinderella with Catherine de' Medici as the main character doesn't work. So you have to invent Danielle. Although now I kind of want to see that version. <laughs> that would be um, wild. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I agree. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting because I know for me as what was I when this came out, like a 10 year old, 11 year old with uh, early access to the internet. I got very invested in in looking up these people and trying to figure out if Danielle was real, uh, which quickly she wasn't. But um, like you were saying, it definitely led young me off into the world of trying to figure out just what exactly was going on with this film. Um, so it does serve a purpose, I think, in, in that sense of, of kindling kind of an interest in history, yeah. even if it's a very inaccurate history. No, definitely. And it does mean that we have the very delightful characterization of Leonardo da Vinci as the sort of fairy godmother, which I think is quite a yeah. fun detail. We have no magic, but we have a very sort of practical version of that with his creative skill and his design skill coming to save the day and that sort of thing makes for a very interesting variant on the story. Yeah, I agree. Um, There's an article that I know that we both read uh, called The Shoe Still Fits Ever After and the Pursuit of a Feminist Cinderella by Christy Williams. Um, And I think it's in that one that she discusses that the fairy godmother role seems to be shared between both Danielle's friend and Leonardo da Vinci, which I thought was interesting in the sense that you have this old man, fairy Mm -hmm. godfather, who, um, you know, is in contemporary, our popular imagination, the quintessential Renaissance man, almost a magician in his designs for flight and in this film for walking on water. Um, And then we have her friend. Yeah, Gustav. So they're shown together as children and they've clearly Mm -hmm. sort of grown up together. He is much lower status than her. He seems to be a servant of some kind, Mm -hmm. Um, but we see him firstly as a child and then later as an adult, he wants to be a painter. And so he is kind of in awe of Da Vinci and becomes his little, his little sidekick for this sort of godfather, fairy godfather part of the film, which is 
yeah, an interesting variant on the idea of the godmother. Uh, it definitely is. Um, and I've been very interested in godmothers in my recent research um, and sort of tracing fairy godfathers. Um, and they're on the rise. Uh, this is, I, there's a few early on. I actually just this morning watched a 1953 short Popeye film where he has a fairy godfather pop in. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, fairy godfathers tend to happen more in gender bent versions of Cinderella. Right. Um, in 1999, you have a fairy godfather in Cinder Elmo, which is where Elmo takes the Cinderella role. Um, <laughs> Sorry, in what? <laughs> Cinder Elmo. Uh, yep, you have Sesame Street's Elmo. Uh, Carrie Russell plays the princess uh, because there's, you know, no prince because it's gender bent. Um, it's a very fun version. But uh, there's definitely a lot of fairy godfathers coming in. And I think this is a pretty early example of a non-gender bent godfather. Mm -hmm. um, and I think something that's interesting that I'm finding is that in some way, a lot of godfathers are queered. Um, in Cinderella, there is a, a 1990s joke, uh, using some language, uh, about like, about, about fairies. And right. it's kind of okay. implied okay. that the fairy godfather is gay. Um, yeah. and yeah. then, um, in, Mm, is it 2010, I think, that Ash comes out by Melinda Lowe, which is a young adult novel. And in that one, the main character, Ashling, has a fairy godfather. And he is in some ways romantically interested in her. But I read a really interesting article about the way that he is intrinsically some kind of queer because he is interested in a human when he's a fairy and so it's sort of this desire for something that is othered from him right um and so like and then there's a bunch of other versions where it's just much more coded queer well there's one coming out like this year or next year yeah, where Billy Billy Porter Porter. Plays the fairy so Godfather, which should be um, really interesting but is a very on the nose example of the sort of queer coding of yeah. the magical potential of these figures yeah yeah and I think that while Leonardo da Vinci is not necessarily queer coded in this Gustav is yes. um so I think that the the way that this film kind of has this like buddy cop going on with Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci and Gustav is really interesting. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that her only real friend is male, but they have to try because it's the 1990s to show that uh, there's no way that he could be interested in Danielle. See, see, yeah. um, but also because it's the nineties, they can't make it overt because mm -hmm. they, it, it, that was not where we were, unfortunately. As a yeah. Society. He has to be like the definition of the non-threatening male mm -hmm. sidekick friend. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, he is in many ways more feminine than Danielle. Like he faints mm -hmm. at one point, there's oh, yeah. this whole plot about how she can run faster than him and she can beat him up and that sort of thing. Which I think brings us on quite nicely to talking about gender in this film, which we've yeah. already started to get into, but there's something quite 
I would say draggy about the way that Danielle dresses up and takes on this character of Nicole, which is the name that she Mm -hmm. gives herself when she meets the prince and she goes to the palace and things like that. Yeah, so Nicole is meant to be her mother's name. She has this whole persona that she comes up with and it's in an effort to free a servant um so this is why she first puts on this outfit which I think also ties in nicely with kind of um this social justicey thing that is definitely in this film but is crops up a lot in Cinderella starting in the 1990s where Cinderella the the Cinderella figure is trying to help the prince make his kingdom a more just place or help the prince be a better ruler and the prince is selfish and horrible um and that definitely fits with this so she first puts on these clothes in an effort to save a servant who has been sold i'm not sure you could do that um oh yeah we need to talk about that so um yeah she's (laughs) attempting to save has apparently been sold by rod miller and he seems to be about to be transported to the americas which again doesn't chronologic chronologically make sense in terms of like um french colonies and the new world and that sort of thing like it's very haphazard in the terms of the timeline but it also doesn't fit within this idea of what the film refers to as enslavement but is actually probably historically more analogous to indentured servitude which mm-hmm. is a nuance that I don't really necessarily expect from a children's film in the 90s <laughs> but you know that's probably worth putting out there just as as one of the little details that is in the background of this so so she goes to try and save the servant who's been yes. sold and strangely in order to do this, she has to become more feminine. Um, But also one would think that the way that she is speaking up is in a sense masculine. So she's sort of blending these qualities. And again, we should say that like, this is the 1990s when the gender binary is strong. Um, (laughs) So there's there, there was not the nuance in gender presentation or ideas that has happened, you know, mainstream nuance anyway, that has happened in the past, what, 22 years, 23 years? Oh. Yeah, Yeah, this film is the same age as my brother, which is weird. Um, Um, But yeah, so there's this, there's this sense in which she has to put on this feminine character in order to charm the prince. And it's at odds with the way that Danielle is often described as masculine. At one point, Rod Miller yells at her and sort of talks about how she's got these very masculine features that remind her of her father and that sort of thing. Yeah, and that that's why she's made for work. Yeah, that's why she's made for work. She has to be a servant because she has these masculine features. And I mean, (laughs) we should probably say- It's Drew Barrymore. It's Drew Barrymore. (laughs) Danielle is played by Drew Barrymore looking absolutely gorgeous the whole way through this film and like the least masculine looking face (laughs) that I can think of. Yes. Um, Yeah, so it has this thing where, yeah, Danielle has to drop her tomboyishness or her masculinity and put on the garb of femininity um, and that that becomes her disguise, which I think is really interesting um, given other media that are coming out in the 1990s. Yeah, so the other film that comes out in 1998 is Mulan, 
which yeah. is kind of the perfect twin to this in a way because you have the main character and again it's a fairy tale it's a folkloric tradition presented in this sort of magical way and obviously in that Mulan disguises herself as a boy and one of the interesting things about Mulan and Danielle is that they both are girls with swords (laughs) they both uh, arm themselves they're both capable of defending themselves but for Mulan the sort of femininity that she's trapped in is imprisoning and restrictive and so she disguises herself as a man to join the army and save her family whereas for Danielle she has to learn to conform to a type of femininity in order to save not her family but her sort of loved ones and closest friends so they sit in this really interesting kind of relationship with each other yeah I definitely see this film as fitting into what the Disney project was in the 80s and 90s. It's not a Disney film, um, but it definitely seems like Danielle is meant to be kind of the spiritual heir of Ariel from The Little Mermaid, um, who sort of does a similar thing where she has to become, literally become a woman uh, in order to win the prince. Um, and and Danielle does a similar thing where she has to like become a woman, but they, it's starting with Little Mermaid, it seems like Disney was trying to go for a feminist type of hero or um, an independent headstrong kind of Mm. princess that was not going to be labeled as meek and passive, uh, which certainly Cinderella um, and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White have all been labeled. We can argue whether or not they are actually weak or passive, uh, (laughs) but like that is what they've been labeled. And it was clear that that's kind of what Disney was going against. And I think Mulan is in this trajectory. And I think then that Danielle is in this trajectory. Um, But despite wanting to make her really feminist, there is always sort of this framing of Danielle against men. Um, So Uh, In the Christy Williams article, it talks about how uh, Danielle's always mentioned in relation to her father or her or the prince. So in the beginning, you know, her father is there and gives her this book. And then the voiceover narrative after he dies says 10 years passed before another man entered her life. And it's like, we don't need to see those 10 years. Oh, no, that's not important. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there's a scene in which her stepmother, Radmila, and stepsisters have her mother's dress and her father's book. And they, the mean stepsister, has the book held over the fire and the stepmother has the dress and says, you have to choose, Danielle, which is it going to be, your mother's dress or your father's book? And she sits there and thinks for a minute. And then she's like, I want my father's book. So it's like she chooses father over mother. Um, it's sort of that even in the frame story with the um, the grand dam telling the Grimms the true story, what we ultimately get is the Grimm's Ashen Poodle. So if we were to take this as real history, quote unquote, the Grimm's don't change their story because of what a woman told them. They stick to their version. Um, so it, it, as much as it wants to be this really feminist thing, it keeps putting Danielle in relationship to men and kind of prioritizing 
male voices over female voices, which is yeah, I can't around it's, that. <laughs> um, it's an interesting choice. And there's a lot going on in terms of how the film treats other women that ever yeah. after sort of in its marketing at the time. And I think in the way that a lot of people remember it, certainly people who saw it as kids and then have kind of kept the memory of it and not necessarily revisited it is that ever after is sort of the feminist Cinderella. It's the mm-hmm. feminist fairy tale. And this film is so cruel to its female characters, like yeah. in a really striking way. Yeah, um, I would agree. I think something that's really interesting is that the punishment for the mean stepsister, Marguerite, and for the stepmother at the end is that they have to work in a laundry. So that's just so typically, stereotypically female. Like the only thing they could have done would have been like showing them in the last scene making a sandwich. Like that would be the only (laughs) more stereotypical thing they could have done. Oh my God. But like, it's just sort of like, there is this sort of idea that like what women do is the worst punishment. And that like, that is a a bad thing. It's a very gendered punishment for them as women. Um, And there's also a sense that like Danielle might have succeeded and, um, you know, have risen to the top of the system, but she hasn't taken any other women with her. She hasn't she might've made some kind of fundamental changes in the prince who now wants to open a university. But I don't think there's any talk about that university being co-ed. Um, there's no oh real, <laughs> yeah, there's no real sense that like she's making changes for other women in her fairy tale world, her fairy tale France. It yeah. sort of seems like, you know, she wants the prince to be a benevolent ruler, but it's hard to say, for who like what systemic changes does she actually want to make and the film's not concerned with that the film is concerned with this budding romance and getting to the ball and the cinderella story um but i do think that it's interesting that it doesn't really engage with what it would actually mean to be a feminist beyond like i want to read and yeah. you know like sort of this again like a disneyfied bell kind of if she's a reader then she's not like the other girls um despite the fact that in 18th century france when bell would have been <laughs> reading her books in beauty and the beast she, there were a lot of female readers yeah <laughs> absolutely um and this is something that's really i think very striking about these stories is that even as they adopt these kind of superficial trappings of not like the other girls the princess can save herself you know she's got the book and the sword and the slippers and she can do it all and have it all it's this very specifically um 90s type of feminism and it's the same thing that we do see in Beauty and the Beast with Belle as this sort of person who's actually like fundamentally not very sympathetic to those around her I mean (laughs) the character of Belle begins that film by complaining about how boring her life is by just yelling all of her problems at the people that are trying to live their lives and I think that's something that flies when you see it as a kid but as soon as you reflect on it for a minute it starts to feel a bit uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. that's very much how I feel about Danielle in this film as well that she's primarily concerned with her own freedom rather than anyone else's. Yeah. And I think another thing that I really just picked up on my last rewatch of this film is how the nice stepsister Jacqueline is actually not very nice at all. Um, And 
And genuinely until this last rewatch, I would have been like, there's a mean stepsister, Marguerite. And then the nice one, Jacqueline, but Jacqueline is actually just in it for herself too. Um, because she's nice to Danielle only because she recognizes that her mother is one step from making her into Danielle. Um, and there's never, it's not like she actually is upset with the way that her mother is treating Danielle. It's not like she thinks that that needs to stop. It's that she is worried that she is going to be the next Danielle. So she doesn't speak up or say anything about the abuse and mistreatment that Radmila puts on Danielle. Um, but then like when Danielle one time comes home late and they haven't made breakfast, Radmila tells Jacqueline to go and make their breakfast eggs. So it's like, she knows that she's, if Danielle disappears, then she's next Jack, in line. Yeah, she's going to be the servant. And there's actually a scene where um, Radmila whips Danielle. And so her back is bloody and messed up and Jacqueline is tending to her back and she even says you brought this on yourself you know like there's yeah, no yeah. there's no real recognition that like she didn't bring this on herself she's being abused um mm -hmm. and it really yeah. seems like Jacqueline only sort of starts to uh be kind or be on Danielle's side once she sort of gets gets a sense of which way the wind is blowing um and so ultimately she ends up missing out on the punishment that Marguerite and Rodmila get basically just by being crafty rather than by being nice. Yeah. Uh, she's, um, she's pretty smart in this film in a yeah. way that like, it's not great, but it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, and then of course, because it's the nineties, they have a lot of body image shaming mm -hmm. for, uh, Jacqueline, which is, a lot around her eating habits and how she eats too much, uh, which is very frustrating uh, for yeah. a lot of reasons, but it kind of goes back, I think, to where body image was in the 90s, um, a little bit of a tangent, but I recently rewatched Bridget Jones' Diary with one of my friends, and that's another one where a perfectly healthy weighted person yeah. is told that she's overweight and is trying to lose weight, um, and my friend and I kind of realized that this was the mid late nineties and that sort of ideal of a size zero was the thing. Um, and I wonder, like, I, obviously I don't think any of that would be in this film if it were made today. Um, not only because I think we as a society have hopefully <laughs> figured out like how not to be horrible. Um, but also I think that I, the ideal shape and size of bodies is changing and what we're seeing is changing. Um, yeah. So that's been, I don't know, it's really upsetting the treatment of Jacqueline mm -hmm. that is not necessarily termed bad. Like I think yeah. we're supposed to think that she does eat too much. Yeah, I think this is, this is also something that kind of stood out to me when I was watching it is that you have these two characters in Danielle and Jacqueline who are both very pretty and yeah. have strong bodies that do what's yes. required of them. But Danielle is described as masculine for her strength and Jacqueline is described as, you know, fat or greedy or anything like that. She is, she's tiny. <laughs> like she's, yeah, she is. she's yeah. really small. And yeah. that's not to say that like, it would be fine if they'd cast a bigger actor. It's to say that this film is very concerned with appearance in a particularly superficial way. And that 
makes it more striking when Marguerite, the character of Marguerite, is played by more of a typical sort of Hollywood pretty actor mm-hmm. in that she's blonde, she's very thin, she's got great bone structure, and she seems <laughs> kind of like the ideal femininity of that time and Danielle and Jacqueline who are coincidentally both brunettes are presented Mm -hmm. as the kind of opposites of that um and it's interesting too I think from a little bit of a a trying to be feminist standpoint um that most mainstream Cinderella's until ever after were white um Mm -hmm. and most of them were blonde so it almost feels like they're trying to be like pushing the envelope by making a brunette cinderella um but it's like they were a year too late because brandy cinderella and whitney houston's had come out in 1997 and yes. it's phenomenal um which i i definitely think we <laughs> needed to throw in that that yeah. is in the cinderella mix like just prior to this film um we have just this amazing diverse Cinderella cast uh, with really genuinely colorblind casting. Um, And unfortunately it's not out on Disney plus in the UK yet Uh, here on March 5th. So I haven't had a chance to rewatch it. It seems also, I tried to watch it as well. And it seems like they've scrubbed it from every platform at the moment. Like it's impossible to get hold of. So that's incredibly frustrating Um, because it March 5th. (laughs) March 5th okay it would have been great to be able to talk about that in comparison to Ever After in the way that in many ways that's a more traditional Cinderella story it doesn't take the same sort of historicizing attempts and that sort of thing but it's so much more modern and it really is yeah fun yeah in a very different way yeah mm-hmm. um and like it's building on a tradition strangely of brunette Cinderella's um mm. because the Rodgers and Hammerstein version that the Brandy version is based off of was first broadcast live on TV in 1957 with Julie Andrews as Cinderella. And then in 1965 with Leslie Ann Warren as Cinderella and Leslie Ann Warren was brunette and so was Julie Andrews, but it was black and white, harder to tell. Um, Okay. So there's some, there's a lot of stuff to love in this film. And I would say that it's actually very funny at times. There are some cute little one-liners and it's got quite a zingy script in that very <laughs> 90s feminist kind of way. Um, yeah. There's a bit where the prince talks about how he wants Leonardo to drag his father into the 16th century, which I always find very cute. Um, yes. And it is genuinely pretty funny in places, but there's a lot (laughs) that's wrong (laughs) with this film and I think it's important that we talk about the representation of a group of characters who in the film are referred to as gypsies who seem to be travelers or Roma and the way that that sort of character is used in fairy tales in general and sort of Disney and other um, pop studio Cinderella's and fairy tales more specifically so yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Roma show up or the travelers show up in this, but they aren't Roma or travelers because what they are is a Hollywood stereotype. Yeah. Um, and so it is, there's really no um, care put into this film for regarding these people as actual human beings with actual history and actual culture. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be, really a part of 
like 1990s culture is this idea of the Hollywood gypsy. Um, and, you know, it comes up in Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is right around this time with Disney. Um, and in one of my favorite miniseries ever, The Tenth Kingdom, um, there's a whole thing about like gypsies and a gypsy curse. And so you have like these kind of stereotypes of the Roma going around um, Hollywood at this point and nobody was calling it out. Um, so it's, you know, they are this 1990s manifestation. Uh, but one, I think, okay-ish bit with these people is that Danielle does explain that they are pigeonholed into a role by society um, and says that like they're not allowed to step outside of that role simply because of their birth. Um, and that's like so mind-blowingly insightful. And then she undercuts it by saying that like the prince has it just as bad as the gypsies because he doesn't get to choose his fate either. And it's like, no, that was not the right direction to go with This kind of thing annoys me so much because it's like, yes, we'll include this trope so that we can talk about how it's a trope. It's a trope, Um, yeah. And then, yeah, and then we'll actually bring it all back to this sad, rich white man and his problems. Because <laughs> it's, just, it's yeah. just really, really hard to be a prince. People are always asking you to do things. <laughs> it's just so difficult. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, so the scene in which, well, there's two scenes in which the gypsies show up primarily. And the first is when they are stealing the Mona Lisa from Leonardo da Vinci and the prince chases them down and gets the painting back. And then the second is that Danielle and the prince are, their carriage has been waylaid and so they're walking back to the castle and Danielle has climbed up this cliff uh, because they're lost and she's trying to see how far she can see she's climbed up this cliff just in her underclothes um, which is just like a shift in this so long white dress basically and stockings Um, and while she is up on this cliff the gypsies show up and start to fight with the prince uh, who is sword fight, who is like, stay up there. You don't need to come into this fray. And one of them has her dress on his sword and is like, haha, I've got your clothes. And she's like, you will give me my dress back. And she <laughs> climbs down the cliff um, and manages to sort of get in charge of this situation mm-hmm. and um, asks the leader of the gypsy band uh if she can he's he makes a deal with her and he says that she can have anything that she's able to carry uh and he's obviously (laughs) assuming that uh she's going to take her clothes you know and leave Mm -hmm. and the prince is like you need to get out of here this is my fight so everyone's expecting that she'll take her clothes and leave and she says anything i can carry do i have your word and he's like yes you have my word i think he even says you have my word as a gypsy um and then uh she goes and she puts the prince on her shoulders and starts to carry him off um which is I think just an amazing moment it's beautiful because she just kind of like hoists him up there and you see the look on his face as he realizes what's going on and he just sort of shrugs and waves as she carries him off and it's beautiful it's so funny and so like charming and you do get a sense of the kind of light-heartedness that's at the core of this film you know it's funny and it's sweet and and this scene is so charming 
But yes. then it ends with the two of them getting drunk with the gypsies and having a lovely evening and blah, blah, blah. And that's when she gives her speech about how, mm-hmm. you know, they're all just trapped by society and fuck society, man. Um, and it's very- Have an like, open mind. Yeah. You know, just like you're trapped, Prince. Um, <laughs> but yes, uh, it's, it's interesting too, because I think that it, like you were saying, it sort of has Danielle again playing with these- gender perceptions um, where she rides this line between being ultra feminine and being masculine and so this is another instance where she has a strong body she can carry a full-grown man on her shoulders which is Um, so hot and so impressive (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and and it's interesting that like it is that that play with gender that ultimately secures both of their release um and and a friendship and i i will say i think it's there's there's some problematic issues maybe with how it's framed but i think it's telling that the prince does not feel emasculated by it he does not get upset he doesn't say like you made me look like a fool or anything like that he is even more in love with her for it which i think is a a really good and interesting choice yeah Definitely. It's, um, it's a nice moment in their relationship. And it's part of this kind of dynamic that we've seen about her educating the prince and sort of trying to make him a better person and him learning from her. And I think we see quite early on that he is very vain and very self-important. And so the fact that she is able to sort of pick him up and rescue him in this scene is one of the first hints that we have at the way that he's maybe grown as a person, which, yeah, mm-hmm. it does make it make for an interesting detail. Um, yeah. Should we talk a bit more about the idea of sort of improving the prince and the role of Cinderella or the princess in making the man better? I was actually thinking when you were saying that we see how he grows, just how much he backslides at the ball. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh my God. Yeah. So um, when they do have a ball uh, and Radmila locks, Danielle in a root cellar basically and is like you can't come to the ball with us uh Leonardo da Vinci gets her out after Gustav says Danielle's locked in the cellar and can't go see the prince um and there's been this sort of through line with Danielle talking with Leonardo da Vinci where she says um a bird may love a fish monsieur but where would they live um and So Da Vinci says, then I shall have to give you wings. Um, And so her dress for this ball is just beautiful. I love this It's so gorgeous. It's It's, it's so lovely as a kind of like classic transformation montage sort of detail. He gives her these beautiful gauzy wings. She's covered in body glitter and stick on rhinestones. It's very 90s. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible, but she does look absolutely gorgeous. And she shows up to the ball looking like a total vision yes um like like a 1990s Ren Faire vision absolutely (laughs) beautiful yes there's nothing accurate about these costumes no no Um, and I mean we're not going to get into the fact that everyone's got their hair down and stuff although it is interesting this is very much within a sort of aesthetic genre that I've seen in a lot of the films mm -hmm. and series that I've been watching for this podcast which is that the 
main character, the sort of female lead, is always by far the most anachronistic, that you'll have background mm. characters in fairly accurate costume, makeup, that sort of thing. But she always has to stay sort of modern pretty. I mean, I watched um, Shakespeare in Love, rewatched Shakespeare oh, yeah. in Love with my boyfriend this weekend. And one of the things that comes out very clearly in that is that Gwyneth Paltrow is like 90s pretty and everyone else has got the really high hairlines, the white makeup, the kind of aggressive blusher, the crazy wigs, that sort of thing. But she is sort of tanned and blonde and gorgeous. And you see quite a lot of that in the way that Danielle is dressed and presented as well. For sure. Um, So Danielle arrives at the ball uh, looking like this beautiful fairy, basically, with her gauzy wings. It's supposed to be the bird. I get it. But like she (laughs) she looks like the fairy godmother. Yeah. Um, And she shows up and the prince has been on the verge of announcing his engagement potentially to Marguerite, her stepsister. And then he runs up to Danielle uh, and she's been trying to tell him for a couple days that she is not Nicole um, and she's not a noble woman and he hasn't been listening to her. And so he's like, come on, I'm going to introduce you to my parents. I'm going to announce my engagement to you. And she's like, no, wait, hold on. I I need to talk to you about something real quick before this happens. Um, And of course, Radmila runs in and is like, this isn't Nicole. This is my serving girl. This is uh, Danielle de Barbarak. And he's like, wait, is this true? Is this true? And she's like, it is true. And then he just sort of embarrasses her in front of the whole court and is horrible. He has a tantrum and it's just awful and like the scene is genuinely quite upsetting to watch because it is you can see how hard she's been trying to sort of be honest with him and be truthful and all of that sort of stuff and then he's just such a brat about the whole thing in this really very upsetting way and I guess this is more of a comment on the sort of genre of romance and fairy tale more generally but it's the kind of thing that you shouldn't be able to come back from in a relationship, yeah. I don't think. But obviously <laughs> he then apologizes kind of, and they do end up with the classic fairy tale ending. But the, the cruelty that he shows in that scene is really like takes him right back to the beginning of this mm-hmm. sort of self-improvement journey. Yes. Um, and he really only comes around because of Leonardo da Vinci again Mm -hmm. stepping in in role of magical helper mediator saying like you don't deserve her she's better than you Uh, (laughs) which da Vinci's right Uh, yeah and then Prince Henry goes and find finds her where she has been sold uh again again sold in a very (laughs) not yeah no um to a guy that has been hanging around Radmila, who's clearly smarmy every time he appears on screen, like there's slimy music and he makes a lot of like sexual innuendo jokes that Danielle is not into. Um, But talk about about queer coding a villain. He's presented as kind of like fairly petite. He's got the twirled mustache kind of thing. He wears jewelry. He's one of the only male characters that wears jewelry in this film. Mm -hmm. And he hits a lot of the kind of classic threatening masculinity that is also somehow sort of subversive and um, corrupted in that sense. And in a very 90s queer coding way. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's true. Um, Yeah, he definitely, he has a swagger about him. He's kind of almost like a pirate. Yeah, (laughs) Um, he looks like a pirate. (laughs) 
yeah <laughs> he's such a pirate and it doesn't make any sense but yeah mm-hmm. um but yeah and yeah very melodramatic um mm-hmm. and and even the scene with him is melodramatic um when she's in his castle his keep mm-hmm. um and she's escaping from him there's a lot of melodrama and again though we get back to that danielle <laughs> can't do anything on her own or anything to do with other women because she manages to get a sword from him and is says like that he has to undo her handcuffs or she's going to slice him from nose to navel and she says her father taught her to be a good swordsman so it's like all of her ideas of self-improve or of societal improvement are coming from thomas moore and her father and then her rescuing herself even it, she's rescuing herself because a man taught her how to rescue herself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and that going along with choosing her father's book over her mother's slippers and all of that, it's kind of, there's, there's a lot of interesting things in here about how it tries so hard to be feminist. She saves herself because yeah. then the prince shows up as she's walking out of Depew's castle and he's like, oh, I came to save you, but I see that you did that on your own. And, and she did. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's no, there is no positive female interaction really in there's the two women that are servants in her house that she is with, who seem maybe to have been positive influences. They help her change clothes at one point to impress the prince. No, I, um, when I first watched this, the rewatch of this film, I saw the servants at the beginning. I had actually completely forgotten that Leonardo da Vinci mm-hmm. was in this at all. Mm-hmm. And so when I started rewatching it and saw the servants, I remembered them as fulfilling the sort of fairy godmother role. And I guess I was probably just remembering that there is this scene where she's in her fancy clothes and she comes home and they help her do like a quick change back into her servant mm-hmm. clothes and that sort of thing. And they're kind of there as these as these godmother figures, mm-hmm. but they don't have the kind of magical deus ex machina quality of someone like Leonardo da Vinci. They can't make wings. They can just no. help her get dressed, which, you know, who needs girly stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's telling too that there's that scene with Danielle and Radmila where she says, like, was there ever a moment that you cared for me? Um, and in within that conversation with Radmila, Danielle says all she's ever wanted is a mother because she's, you know, Radmila is the only mother that she's ever known and she just wants somebody to love her. And I was like, was there no way that you could have gotten that from the women who you yeah. are clearly acting like a mother to you? But yeah, so there's this sense that there's been no positive female influence in her life at all, um, which is interesting in a feminist Cinderella. Yeah, it's pseudo-feminist <laughs> to say the at, at best. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting to see the way that these films and the sort of fairy tale genre and the kind of Hollywood fairy tale sort of industry seem pretty incapable of recognizing any sort of female solidarity and yes kindness and care you see that very very rarely you have a sort of female character helping another and that's obviously starting to change now in more recent films but it is rare to really see that kind of care and generosity except from the fairy godmother characters yeah yeah and I think it's often discounted in the Cinderella story um 
people tend to focus on the relationship with the stepmother. And I think that's to the exclusion of looking at the relationship with the fairy godmother, which is a kind woman who really with no ulterior motive comes in and helps another woman. Um, And I think that that's something that's important that needs to be drawn out of the Cinderella story a bit more is the way that it is a story about women helping women. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a story about women hurting women. But I think that, you know, we always talk about how we want stories that show that women don't just have to be strong female leads and that women like men embody a whole range of emotions and kinds and actions. Um, and I think Cinderella does that in a really interesting way that isn't talked about enough. Yeah, I think this brings us on quite nicely to some of these other kind of representations and interpretations of Cinderella. So I I guess I'm thinking about Marina Warner and her descriptions of fairy mm-hmm. tales and the way that she talks about fairy tales and from the beast to the blonde is really interesting because she contextualizes them in the way that they were told yes. to teach and inform. And so the morals yeah. of these stories, whether they're the sort of overt morals that you get in the Perrault versions or the implicit narratives are very much about girls finding their place and understanding the society in which they live and so for Cinderella the main story is that your kindness and your sort of essential beauty will shine through even in a difficult situation and and that's an important message for people to hear in you know the 16th 17th 18th through to today centuries but the way that it then materializes in most of the film versions of Cinderella is this very superficial fixation on be pretty and be kind and everything will fall into Uh place, (laughs) which brings us on to the 2015 version, um, (laughs) which I'd like to talk about just briefly in terms of how it has this message running throughout of have courage and be kind. Yes. Um, That seems to me to be a paraphrase from the Grimm's version, actually, Mm -hmm. where the mother says, um, be, I think she says, be good and be pious. Um, yeah, the, the Grimm's that's a whole can of worms. Um, (laughs) but, uh, and so like this have courage and be kind seems to be sort of like they are taking the Grimm's. So the, the live action Cinderella much more than the 1950 animated Disney Cinderella, the 2015 Disney Cinderella is very much an amalgamation to me of the Grimm's Perot and then ever after. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of does the thing where it tries to give a backstory to the stepmother um, and pay, well, played beautifully by Kate Blanchett. They just keep getting the perfect stepmothers, I have to oh say. Oh my God, um, I know. And the combination of Angelica Huston and Kate Blanchett is just stunning. <laughs> Both so of good. them take these roles that are essentially sort of caricature cartoon villains and just absolutely fucking chew the scenery in the most incredible way it's so good um but yeah so it has like sort of a backstory for her they have a very similar scene where the father dies and his last words are to cinderella rather than to the stepmother and so she's upset and that sort of sets off part of why she hates cinderella so much so that scene is very similar between the two um But it feels, I don't know, it's hard to say. I don't think either of them is a particularly feminist version of the tale. Um, But I feel like, I feel like the live action Disney one was trying to 
be feminist and trying to maybe to rectify some of what people have complaints with, with the 1950s one. In particular, she and the prince have a relationship prior to the ball. So you don't have the insta love going on. Um, (laughs) And, you know, things like that, that they pull in. But yeah, it's the fairy godmother in that one is played by Helena Bonham Carter, who I think is gorgeous in that role. But again, they do a fairy tale thing, um, sort of a, well, it's a trope in a lot of different stories, but sort of a Beauty and the Beast thing where she appears as a beggar woman um, and, you know, she's asking Cinderella to give her water and Cinderella does. And it is because of this good act that she gets to have her transformation. So you have sort of the test of the protagonist there, which is a trope of a lot of fairy stories. Um, But then... I don't know. They, they get rid of her being grandmotherly and old, but they don't really get rid of her being kind of ditzy. Oh, I have a lot of patience for Helena Bonham Carter and the kind of shtick that she's created, over uh-huh. the years, but I found it so frustrating in this film because she's just like walking into furniture and stuff. And <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it everything about this 2015 film takes the surface level of the story and goes about, 10% of the way towards depth but then just stays uh-huh. on the surface level trope like we have this idea that Lady Tremaine the stepmother has this difficult past but we never really get any kind of it's very hard to develop much sympathy for her we have yeah. the beautiful girl who talks to animals and and it's just very weird it just comes across as very very strange (laughs) there is a delightful sequence where she's like talking to a horse and Richard Madden who plays the prince has the most like confounded expression on his face of like oh this girl is so pretty but she's clearly weird (laughs) um and and yeah we have the sort of like ditzy kooky fairy godmother but she's just just very eccentric and very tropey Yeah. And I think the thing for me that makes me like the 1950 version over the 2015 version is that for as much as they wanted this one to be like a strong Cinderella character, she does not save herself. And you can argue Mm. that she doesn't in the the 1950 one, but in the 1950 version, um, Lady Tremaine locks Cinderella in the attic and has the key and Cinderella asks the mice to go get the key. So she is actively like deploying essentially her avatars because the mice sort of serve as an avatar. You know, they are pitted against Lucifer, Lady Tremaine's cat. So they're Cinderella's friends against Lady Tremaine's cat. So it's uh, and it's a proxy war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then there's Bruno the dog. Um, and so you have like the mice going to get the key and Lucifer is trying to stop them. And the mice have almost got the key to her when Lucifer stops them. So then she shouts down, go get Bruno, who is really the Cinderella character. And Bruno comes up and defeats Lucifer. She gets the key. She runs downstairs. She says, wait, 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 me, try it on me. And the Grand Duke is like, oh, another person. Okay. And then Lady Tremaine trips him and breaks the, he breaks the glass slipper when he trips. And then she pulls out the other slipper and is like, but look, and they're like, yay, we found her. Um, In the 2015 one, you have Cinderella locked in her room. Lady Tremaine has broken the glass, the other glass slipper a while ago. And, uh, and then she just like, stares dreamily out the window 
singing and the voiceover narration, which is the fairy godmother, says something along the lines of like, Cinderella would always have wonderful memories of the ball. And she's just like, oh, da, da. and like the, I think it's the mice still in this, even though they don't talk, but the mice are like, look out the window. They're here to try the slipper on people. And she's just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and not paying attention. And so the mice like open, open the, window. the window and then somebody hears her singing and is like, who is that? And then they're like, get her down here. Whereas like, she didn't, you can say like, well, the mice save her in 1952, but she's asking them to, she's yes. saying, go get the key. Whereas <laughs> like in this one, they kind of just do it for her. And I was like, there's, she takes no active role whatsoever no. in this. And that it really upset me. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found the 2015 version very irritating, I think mostly because it's incredibly pretty and it's beautiful. Yes. Oh, the costume. The, costume, oh the costumes are great. It's gorgeous. Although I think the blue dress that she wears to the ball is a bit meh. Um, <laughs> and the shoes, the glass slippers are absolutely fucking repulsive. I think they are so ugly. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't like them. I don't like them at all. Oh. I love the ones in Ever After. So maybe that's the, an unfair okay. comparison. I think I think they're really interesting because they were based on fetish shoes, which I think is. So oh, I didn't cool. know that. Okay, now I like yeah. them more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's interesting because it still has this very strong narrative of the sisters as ugly. Uh, yeah. In a in a very heavy handed way, you know, they've got frizzy red hair, which is the easiest <laughs> shorthand for ugly stepsister that I can think of in any kind of genre or representation. And they shriek at each other and they can't sing and they're useless with cleaning. And so it's like, well, yeah, hit every single note for mm-hmm. unfeminine and therefore unacceptable. And I wanted it to be better and more interesting and I'm not saying that because I want like a fucking gritty reboot or whatever I just don't I just thought it could do better (laughs) yes yeah I agree especially when they already had done the brandy one right exactly so good you can bring that energy just be more interesting like just be slightly more creative with your choices and (laughs) yeah So I think this is a nice time to slightly tie things up by asking Mm -hmm. what would you, what would your ideal version of a Cinderella film or adaptation or something look like? That's so hard. I've recently (laughs) counted and I think I've read and watched something like 75 different versions of Cinderella in the past two years. So I've just been steeped in it. And so it's really difficult for me to say because there's so many things that I like about so many different ones. I think it really depends, I guess, on what you're trying to do and what you're trying to comment upon. So my I think my very favorite version is a book called Disenchanted, The Trials of Cinderella by Megan Morrison. And in that version, Cinderella lives, it's a fantasy world uh, called Time, T-Y-M-E, and she lives in the Blue Kingdom. And her whole modus operandi is getting in like unionization, sick leave, workers' rights for people in the textile industries. It's and it's a fantasy world, but it is entirely so yeah, it's entirely about fast fashion. And ultimately she kind of 
invents like a fair trade kind of thing. Um, it's really amazing. (laughs) There's fairy godfathers in it. Um, and well, it's the, the fairy godfather ring system is really good. So there's a firm called the glass slipper and Serge it's basically devil wears Prada Serge who is her, uh, fairy godfather. Yeah. He's the Stanley Tucci and there's a Meryl Streep at this firm (laughs) and he's waiting for her to retire because he knows he's going to be the head of the glass slipper. Once she retires, um, there's intrigue and corruption in the head families of the blue King them. And then meanwhile, you know, the prince and Cinderella are falling in love. Um, and it's just like, it's really interesting, really good. It's a middle grade novel, maybe young YA. I would say the covers of these books. So she has three books in the series, Grounded, which is a Rapunzel one, Disenchanted Cinderella, um, and a Frog Prince one. The covers are not great. The covers look very childish. And I think it is off-putting to the age range that she's trying to reach, which I would say is probably like 13 to 18. And it looks like it's more for like eight to 10. So I think that's why these books haven't taken off because I don't think the covers, they're, they're pretty covers, but I don't think that they're suited to the material inside of them um but yeah so that is probably my favorite I love just it was it was one of the books that started my PhD and got me really thinking about fast fashion and the fashion industry and how how bad it is (laughs) that sounds so so fantastic and like a really fun variation on a story that everyone knows you know it's really yeah. hard to reinvent the wheel and yeah. it's hard to make a new fairy tale or hard to make an old fairy tale interesting a lot of the time so yeah that sounds really cool thank you for that recommendation yeah. and yeah is there anything else that you'd like to add anything that we might have missed or no I think we're think we've covered a lot we've covered it we've covered we've covered a huge amount and um yeah it's been really fun to talk about something that's not sort of straight historical but the way that the way that we use these fantasies of the past to tell us stories about the present um so if people want to find you where are you on twitter and things like that um on twitter and instagram both i am at once upon a fine so like my name's Abigail Fine. So once upon a fine. Um, and yeah, that's where I am. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your thoughts and opinions about this. It's been really, really great fun. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. This has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it.